It was about five and a half years ago now when the bottom fell out of my life, uh, where, where my world exploded. Um, my marriage was on the brink, and that was a byproduct of uh, my sin, my failure. Uh, I was uh, years and years into uh, working really, really hard to let people see what I wanted them to see and not being honest with myself or with others about the rest. One of the challenges of living that way is that if, if you have a spouse, uh, eventually they just uh, experience you too intimately to be able to put a facade on. And so uh, many of you were around when that hard time came in my life. And the reality is that I wasn't being real, I wasn't being honest, and I had come to the end of where my self-reliance, it had been that. And trying to manage everything, I'd come to the end of where that got me. And it was, my life at that time was a colossal failure. Have you ever had that in your life? Colossal failure? Like, I'm not talking about the pretty sins we share with each other. I was good at that. I mean the dark recesses of, recesses of our hearts being exposed. Colossal failure. If you have, it's going to be a great morning for you. Because we're going to look at a man named Peter, really close disciple of Jesus, and his colossal failure, and the fact that it's not the end of the story for him. So this passage has so ministered to my heart. I cried in the first service. You're going to have to deal with the awkwardness of a man crying in front of you, most likely, again, in the second service, because it's just, oh, thank you, Jesus, for what you want to teach, for what you bring us through. May he minister to us this morning. If you're new, we're, we've been going through the Gospel of John for the better part of 100 years, and, uh, and we're in John 18 now, quite literally. So John 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. If you were here last week, you'll know we, we kind of did something a little bit goofy where, where the, John, the Gospel writer, kind of splits up stories. It works great in the movies and in the story you're reading, and if you sit down and read John Go John's Gospel, he writes it. So, well, it's hard to preach, though, half of a, a questioning by a high priest named Annas, one of Peter's trials, a little more questioning by Annas, two more uh, denials of, of, of Peter. And so what we did last week is we looked at everything that, that Annas did in questioning Jesus. And now this week we're looking at the three denials of Peter. So we're going to uh, jump around a little bit. It'll be on the screen. John 18, starting in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We're not entirely sure who that was, because that's all it says. Another disciple, and tells us that he was kind of on the inside with some of the, the high priest uh, people. But many assume that it's John, the gospel writer himself. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. It says in, in other Gospels, um, Peter um, 
was back at a distance. Kept his distance, but was still wanted to kind of be around. Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now let's jump to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, Are you also not one of his disciples? You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Amazing, right? I don't know if it was his cousin or his brother. He's like, no, 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 like, you're the guy who like, literally just cut off my cousin's ear, right? Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter, again, denied it. In a couple of the other Gospels, it's much more extreme. It's this elevating denial by Peter. Yes, uh, John's really literal here. He denied, he denied, he denied. But, but a couple of the other Gospel writers point out, he denied it with an oath. No, I swear to you, I, did, I don't know him. And then the third time, it, it says he starts to curse. He's swearing the third time around. No, I don't know him. I'm not his disciple. Like with cursing. And at once, at once, a rooster crowed. Way back in John chapter 13, right? A bunch of chapters back, a year ago back for us, uh, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. What's interesting about that is, yeah, it's a bunch of chapters back, but we're talking eight hours ago. Like, we're talking mere hours. So when Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times, it's before sunrise. Like, within the day, you're going to deny me. So Jesus actually looks at Peter, Peter and says it in response to Peter being like, can I go where you're going? Jesus is like, you can't go where I'm going now. You can't go where I'm going yet. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to go on to glory. And Jesus is like, no, you can't come with me yet. And Peter's like, I want to come with you now. Like, I'll, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you. And in response to that, Jesus is like, actually, what you are going to do is not go to prison for me or go die for me within hours. You're going to deny me three times is what you're going to do before the rooster even crows. I like Peter a lot because I see a lot of Peter's failures as my failures. Um, Peter's interesting. I would say that Peter's the alpha male of the disciples. Would you agree? Like, like Jesus is walking on water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's like, can I come? And he like gets out of the boat and starts to walk to Jesus. Like he's just, I'll do it. Like, and then like he starts to walk to Jesus, and then he's like, wait a minute. People don't walk on water, and <laughs> we don't do this, do we? And he starts to doubt himself and starts to sink. But there's that impulse in him. It's like, I'll go. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this scenario where, where, where much like Jesus' um, baptism, the, the, God the Father speaks to his son, this is my son whom I love, I'm well pleased. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. God, uh, Jesus the Son is having this moment with the Father and it says that Moses and Elijah are there as well and Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Astounding scenario. And Peter jumps into the middle of this holy moment and is like, should I build three tents? 
One for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you, Jesus. Let's keep this thing going. He's just stepping into this like holy, incredible transfiguration moment. Like, want me to build some tents, Jesus? Just, he's just right in there. That's him. Like, they're in the garden. Like, we saw this moments ago, two weeks ago in the sermon. But moments ago for Peter, they come to arrest Jesus, these officers. And what does Peter do? His impulse is pull out the sword and he chops off an ear. Now he's either really good with the sword or really bad with the sword, right? Either he was trying to like hurt, like kill the guy or get, get him right in the square of the head and he's just really bad with the sword or he's very precise and was going for that ear to warn him. I don't know. But either way, Peter in that moment is like, I'll do it, right? Like he's that, he's that guy. But then Jesus is sent off to be tried. And really in Peter's first moment alone, after three and plus years of, of following Jesus, by being by Jesus' side, in his first moment to step out in faith, what does Peter do? He stumbles and he falls. Interestingly, John wants us to see this three times in the garden scene where they come to arrest Jesus. Three times they ask Jesus who he is, if he is Jesus, and he says, I am, I am, I am. Directly following, Peter is asked three times, are you one who's with Jesus? I am not, I am not, I am not. Jesus, faithful, Peter, failure. It's interesting, Peter is standing before this charcoal fire and a servant girl asks, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And he says, I'm not. And then over the course of that evening, probably an hour or so, he's asked it pointedly a couple more times. And he's already gone there, right? So he just keeps saying, no, no, no. You ever find that in your life? Sin once. Why not do it again, right? Ooh, when I talked about that person, it felt so good. You didn't just gossip once. Before you know it, you've become a gossip. Did it once. Felt good. Do it again. Isn't that the temptation? You look at porn once. Ugh, I've already screwed up. I, I've already failed. It's e much easier the second, third time. Adultery, commit adultery. Cheated once, why not cheat again? Premarital sex, why not again? Right? Name your sin. Peter, in that first real test of faith, trips bad. <laughs> trips bad. The other accounts say the moment that Peter denies Jesus a third time, it tells us right then, Jesus looked him in the eye. I mean, Jesus was just a short ways away. Peter denies his Savior, his Lord, three times, and Jesus looks him in the eye, and right at that moment, the rooster crows, and Peter remembers. And it says that he went out and wept bitterly. J.C. Ryle, faithful pastor of old, said, lovingly anxious to see what was done to him, yet not bold enough to keep near him like a disciple. Anyone can see that the unhappy Peter was under the influence of very mixed feelings. Love made him ashamed to run away and hide himself. Cowardice made him ashamed to show his colors and stick by his Lord's side. Hence, he chose a middle course, the worst as it happened, 
that he could have followed. Tested and failed. Six things we can learn from the fall of Peter. I'm helped by uh, theologian Arthur Pink on some of these. First, believers are weak in and of themselves. Isn't that the truth? We learn that from Peter and we learn that from even trying to live the Christian life for any amount of time. Believers are weak in and of themselves. This, this coincides with, with the second thing we can learn from the fall of Peter. So let me name it and then we'll talk about the two. The danger of self-confidence. We learn from the fall of Peter the danger of self-confidence and that believers are weak in and of themselves. Just a little while earlier in the garden, Jesus told his disciples, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, is Jesus right? The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. He told his disciples this. He's warning them. He's telling them. This is the true state of affairs. You're all for me right now, but just know, flesh is weak. Peter was too self-reliant, too confident in himself, and Peter learned the consequence, a consequence of self, such self-confidence. The reality is this. This is what the Bible teaches us. We are depraved sinners, not just mild sinners or relatively good people who sin sometimes. What the Bible tells us is that we are helpless sinners. We're fallen weak and corrupted. And we need to be honest about that. We put ourselves in a vulnerable place to think we're strong, to think we're capable to stand firm on our own. That was Peter. Paul reminded himself, the apostle, all the time, and he referred to himself as the chief of sinners, and he meant that. He knew he was weak. He knew where self-confidence would lead him. And so he kept at the tip of his tongue and in his heart, I'm the chief of sinners. And you know what he meant by that? But for the grace of God, there go I. Now we need to learn from that. As we see someone fall from grace, as we see someone falling, failing, sinning, we should not think, oh, they're not strong enough. We should think, oh, but for the grace of God, that's me too. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak in me and in you. Third, we learn from the fall of Peter the consequences of prayerlessness. Again, back to the garden. We see it in Matthew 26. Jesus tells his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knows temptation is right around the corner, moments away for them. Jesus knows that's what's coming for them. And what does he tell them to do? Watch and pray. And they keep falling asleep. Okay, Jesus. Like, dear Lord. There's consequences to prayerlessness. Jesus, on the other hand, prayed for Peter. We see in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, what an interesting statement, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is where the story's going to go, and Jesus is telling him. Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times, but he also says, Satan wanted you. He wanted to take you all the way out when you failed, but I prayed for you, and you will be restored, and you will be used mightily. I've prayed for you. Jesus is telling, watch and pray. Peter doesn't do it, and yet Jesus himself prays. Or him. Peter failed to be de- dependent in prayer. Listen, do you have a non-existent or nearly non-existent prayer life? Do you? You know what that means? I'm feeling like I need to preach today. <laughs> you know what that means? It means your dependence is on yourself, period. Right? Because what does prayer do in our lives? What is prayer? Oh, God, please help me. I need your help here. Oh, Lord, would you move here? Oh, Lord, this burden is too heavy for me to bear. Would you take it, Lord? Like, do you hear that? That's, that's prayer life. That's, that's us praying prayers of, I need you. I can't do this. I rely on you. Come work here mightily. This is beyond me. Like, that's prayer. That's prayer life. So what does it mean when we have next to or nearly or no prayer life at all? Well, it means we're a lot like pre-fallen or about to fall, Peter. It's a sign of reliance on self. Fourth, we learn from the fall of Peter here that there's a warning about the company we keep. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Peter follows these, uh, well, he fought, him and another disciple follow Jesus, but they enter a court of people to do with the high priest, and they're putting Jesus on trial. So he's with uh, some uh, Dangerous company. And um, if, you, if you've been around me or Central uh, long enough, you know I am all about, we talk a lot about, we value missional living here at Central. That we, what that we mean by that is we would be salt and light in this world, in our community, that we would go out and proclaim the gospel and show the gospel, display the gospel to people that they might be drawn to Christ. And we call you to that. Each one of you have a sphere of influence in this community that I do not have. So you go with the gospel and get to be salt and light in that place in a way I never could or the rest of Central as a church could not. And we call you to that. Yes, yes, yes. That does not mean that there isn't a danger to that. So I'm not saying abandon that. We believe in that. We believe that Jesus calls us to missional living. But hear the warning This is the lesson we learn of Peter. There's a danger that as you go out to influence people with the gospel who need to be influenced the gospel, there is a danger that they influence you more than you influence them, right? That's the danger. And Peter was with the kind of company where his faith could not stand anymore. You ever been there? And I think we don't think about this often in, in, in our time and place in the church today. We're so missionally minded. Praise God. He's doing a work through that. And yet I think we, right, we start to say things like this. Don't you, don't you realize, don't you read the gospels? Jesus was a friend of sinners. So I need to go to the party, right? I want to be like Jesus. I want to live missionally. I want to do that, right? Yes. Okay, great. But I heard one preacher put it this way. Two things happen. One of two things happened when Jesus went to parties, when Jesus was friends of sinners. They either repented or they wanted to kill him. And so the question we have to ask ourselves when we go to the party, you know, that I'm referring to, being a friend of sinners and in those kinds of settings, in those parties, here's a question. When was the last time people either repented or wanted to kill you at the party? 
That's what happened when Jesus went. So don't use the line, oh, I'm being like Jesus by going. And Who's influencing who is the question, and we need to evaluate that. There's a warning here of the company that Peter kept in this time. It caused his fall. He put himself in that place. And so we just want to hear that. Fifth, the disastrous influence of the fear of man. Learning from the fall of Peter, we recognize the disastrous influence of the fall of man. You may not be familiar with that terminology, fear of man, the fear of God. Because God is holy and awesome and powerful, there should be a reverence in us towards God, and we should see him rightly. There should be a healthy fear of God. A fear of man, on the other hand, is that we worry more about what people think than what God thinks. And that, of course, is totally backwards because God is glorious. But functionally, we see the disastrous influence here of the fear of man. Luke 22, when Jesus said he prayed for Peter, Peter responded by saying, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But he wasn't. Look, Peter didn't just have the fear of man. He had the fear of servant girl. He wasn't ready. His fear of, of what this servant girl might say when she posed the question to him more than what he, th- he thought about what God thought. And he was tripped up. Sixth, what we learn from the fall of Peter, preparation against the surprise when others fail us at critical times. This can be such a kick in the gut, hey? When you're going through a faith crisis, when you're going through a difficulty and it feels like everyone around you is failing you. And the lesson here is, is, is that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus is unfairly tried, punished, and crucified and has been all but abandoned by his closest friends. And yet, Christ's faithfulness was not contingent on a support network, although we should be that absolutely as a church family, yes. But when others failed him, it did not cave him in. He was not surprised by it. He was ready for it. Okay, let's move on. Let me ask you a question. I I think it's an obvious question, but let's pose it so we can interact with it a little bit. Does it matter if I deny Jesus? If you know the story, you know that, that Peter's going to get um, kind of redeemed, restored. So it doesn't matter if I deny Jesus. Well, Jesus says, his own words, Matthew ten thirty three: whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a warning. Whoever denies me, When you go and stand before the judgment seat of God, you look over to Jesus, he's, I don't know who he is. I don't know him. Now, who would deny Jesus? What's the context of Matthew 10, 33? Who would deny Jesus? Well, somebody who's pressed, right? Somebody who's feeling the heat, feeling the pressure. Speaks to the severity of denying Jesus, though, these words that we need to understand. And so there's a command here and a warning here that we are to remain faithful to Jesus as disciples. Right? So I don't... Maybe we should go on sinning so that his grace looks more amazing. No. See, we see Peter deny and then God reinstates him. So maybe I can just deny. No. There's a command of Jesus here that says, do not. As we'll see later on, there is mercy for those 
who deny and then repent. What seems to be the ultimate context of Matthew 10.33 is those who deny and go to the grave denying. And Jesus will ultimately, for eternity, give them what they desired, an eternity denying Jesus. Are you familiar with Corey Ten Boom? Corey Ten Boom lived through the uh, Second World War uh, from the Netherlands, a Dutch Christian. We have a few of those in the room. Uh, her and her family uh, saved the lives of many Jews. She was a young woman, young girl. Uh, her sister, her father, they were involved in um, yeah, just housing uh, Jews, hiding them in a closet in their home. Saved many countless lives, and she was in a concentration camp for that. But before she was taken there, and knowing that she might someday have to pay with her life for living out her Christian faith, faith in such a difficult context... As I think a teenager at this time, she asked her father how, how she could have strength. Right? Probably a moment of weakness. Like, Am I going to be able to have the strength to persevere? And the story is that her father said to her, when I send you on the train to go somewhere, do I give you the ticket a month ahead of time? Or do I give you the ticket as you get on the train? I love that. She was put in a concentration camp, as were the rest of her family, and she was the only one who survived because there was an accidental, there was a clerical error, and she was released a week before the rest of her age group were put in a gas chamber. What was her dad saying? He was saying, God will give us what we need when the train of suffering and death arrives at the station." Praise God. Like we, we've seen this in other texts. Like when you're pressed, and you know you need to proclaim the gospel, you know you need to stand for your faith, and you're at a loss, and you're like, I don't know if I'll ever have the words to say that are eloquent, that are right in that moment. And we are assured in the scriptures that we, as we just depend on the Spirit of God, as we just desire to stay faithful to Jesus, we're told that he will give us the words to say in those moments. It's as we're getting on the train, he'll hand us the ticket, see us through that hour. Praise God. But we would be wise to learn how to ready ourselves for this hour of testing. That's just wise discipleship. That's just maturing in faith, being prepared for the hour of testing. Now, I've, I've said of our cultural moment, listen, there are Christians in most parts of the world who truly suffer for the gospel in ways that we don't. We have it good. And yet what I will also say in the same breath is that in this cultural moment, the temperature is rising on the pressures of being a Christ follower in our time and place. And so we ought to be ready, ready to be faithful, ready to live for Jesus. Let me give you six more because I think 12-point sermons are, what, nine times better than three-point sermons. So there you go. And the other benefit is we, I can just release you from here straight to the Celestia Room for Leadership Lab at six. It's just one natural segue. All right. Readying ourselves for the hour of testing. Six more. First, Dwell regularly on your eternal home. 
2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us to do that. Paul says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're fleeting. They're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What's the instruction? We look not to the things that are seen. We don't just fix our gaze on what's happening right now around us as if it's ultimate. There's a view that the Christian takes upwards. There's a a view of eternity that's always on our minds that says, this is what's coming These promises of God will not fail. They're true. They're coming. And so there's this eternal perspective that we can have. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ, yes, and to die, though, is gain. Better. Going to be with Jesus, even better. And it gives him proper perspective. There's this old phrase, right? So heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good? I don't think I've ever met anybody like that. I've met a lot of people with the opposite, though. So earthly-minded? Of no heavenly good. So fixated on the here and now, the right now, the problem I'm going through right now, and it's all-consuming. No, it's not. The promises of God for your eternity exist and cannot be taken. So first, dwell regularly on your... Why am I shouting? Are you feeling... Relax. Sorry, I'm going to tone it down. First, dwell regularly on your eternal home. Second, recognize that there are things worse than death. Do you? Do you know that? For the Christian, death is not the worst thing. Paul just said it's gain. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them. Don't fear them. You don't have to fear. If you know that your soul is secure in God's hands for eternity, you can literally look to somebody who's about to kill you and say, You can't hurt me. For the Christian, death is not the end or hopeless. There are worse things than death. Know that going into trials. Third, Christ died for you. And that seems a bit odd that it's just in the middle of six here. This is the ult- We're going to dwell on this at the end. But, but we need to have this on our hearts as we ready ourselves for the hour of t- testing. We need to recognize this. Christ died for you. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died Jesus died for you so that you can live for him and die for him. Should difficulty come, consider this. Jesus has already died for you. Fourth, expect to suffer for Christ. Keyword, expect to suffer for Christ. 1 Peter 4.12, that's right. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's happening? Life is not going perfectly right now. What? What's happening? So many people have have drunk this Kool-Aid in the Christian church of, I love Jesus, all should go well. Not true. Not biblical. Peter's saying, don't be surprised when what fiery trials come. That sounds awful. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised as if something strange is going on. Expect it. 
Expect it. Peter, this Peter we're talking about this morning, says don't be surprised by faith trials because Jesus will use those faith trials to purify his church and to grow his disciples more deeply rooted in him than he could in any other way. Fifth, trust that God will provide for the consequences of your faithfulness. Here's what I mean. Philippians 4, here's what Paul means. It's better. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is a promise, a promise for you to hear. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So circumstantially, here's what I'm saying. There will be times in your life where you will face fiery trials where to be faithful to Jesus will cost you something here. I don't know what it is, relationships, monetarily, But what the promise is, is that, okay, yeah, there's a cost. But put it in proper perspective. You have an infinite God with infinite riches who infinitely wants to bless you. And so as something costs you here, you have God, the infinitely gracious one. God, the infinitely generous one, promising to you, I'll supply your every need. Yeah, it may cost you but I will supply your every need. Sixth, don't boast, pray. Don't boast, pray. That was Peter's problem. Others will fall away, not me. I'll go to prison, I'll die. A few hours later, there's a little girl saying, are you one of his disciples? No, not me. Don't boast, pray. First Corinthians one thirty one. let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Maybe I should change that. Don't boast in yourself, boast in Jesus. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't hear in this list a works righteousness in this list, the idea that we can tick all the boxes and be enough in and of ourselves to merit God's favor if we would just do these six things. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is Peter comes along and says, I'll never deny you. And what we are to learn here is that, yeah, It's in us to be able to deny our Lord. Oh, fit us for what you have in store for us, that we would be found faithful. We're utterly dependent on your grace. Now, here's the great news, great, great news. Peter's restored. We want to look at the restoration of Peter. Other gospels tell us, like I said, that at the moment of Peter's third denial, Jesus looked at him The rooster crowed, and then he remembered what Jesus had said to him, and then he went out and wept bitterly. Now look, there is a kind of regret in the life of a non-believer that leads to hopelessness because there's nothing that can be done to save themselves. You want an example of that? Judas. But in the Christian's life, the life of the Christian is a life of repentance and faith. Grief in the life of a follower of Jesus leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says as much, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The life of the Christian is a life of repentance and faith. This is how we come to faith in the first place. We repent of our sin and we turn to Jesus and the Christian continues to live that way. Repentance and faith. Oh, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I turn to you in faith. I want to walk with you. Look, we all fail. I stood up here this morning from the outset and said, 
I'm Peter. May I be so bold? So are you. But what do you do when you fail? Like, what do you do when you fail? Because there's a godly grief that leads to repentance, one of salvation. And then there's a worldly grief that produces death. Have you been feeling really bad and sitting in it ever since? It's not the gospel. It's not the Christian life. Let me, let me close this out. In the boat in Galilee is kind of where, where we pick this up in, in John 21. Jesus has risen, and yet the, the disciples have kind of gone back to their old ways. They're not, they think that the gig with Jesus is done. And so they're fishing in Galilee on the sea, out to shore probably a little bit on the boat. And a man from the shore yells out to them, throw your net on the other side, right? Because they, they weren't having success. And John's in the boat and is like, that's Jesus. And it says in uh, John 21 verse 7 that in that moment, Peter threw himself into the sea and swam to shore. That is me. Like, Oh, I, I, okay, do you sin? Do you fail? Are you super good at it? I, I want you to hear what Peter does. Jesus shows up, and what does he do? Just, he, he's like, you guys can't row fast enough to get this boat to shore. I'm just jumping in, and I'm, sw- I'm going to Jesus, falling at his feet, and just saying, Lord, forgive me, and that's precisely what he does. And you know what happens next? It says that they made a charcoal fire and they had a meal together. Charcoal fire. I just love the grace of God. Peter denied Jesus three times over a charcoal fire. And now on the shore of Galilee, by a charcoal fire, Jesus takes Peter aside and says three times, Hey, do you love me? Peter, who had jumped in the boat and swam to Jesus, you know I love you. Do you love me? Oh, you know I love you. Do you love me? You know all things, Jesus. You know I love you. Okay, you can feed my lambs. That is the gospel on display. Look at Peter. That's repentance on display. That's our job. And then look at Jesus. The gospel on display. All right. I prophesied you'd deny me, but you know what else I knew was coming? That I'd restore you. And that I would use you. Let me just give you a timeline. Peter tells Jesus he'd lay down his life for Jesus. Then about eight hours later, he denies Jesus three times. Then roughly 50 days later, Peter gets up in Jerusalem. We call it Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell upon the believers. And Peter preached a sermon to thousands of people, including those who put Jesus on trial that he was scared of and proclaims the gospel to them and thousands are saved. And then a little while later, this group that put Jesus on trial take John and Peter and put them before them and said, stop preaching about Jesus. And you know what Peter says in Acts 4.20? We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. This is a different Peter. The threat of death now couldn't stop Peter from proclaiming Jesus. God wanted to use his biggest failure to prepare him for his greatest purpose. Back to J.C. Ryle, he said, Peter no doubt fell shamefully and only rose again after heartfelt repentance and bitter tears, but he did rise again. And he was not cast off forevermore. 
The same pitiful hand, the handful of pity was a pitiful hand, the same pitiful hand that saved him from drowning when his faith failed him on the waters was, the, was once more stretched out to raise him when he fell in the high priest's court. I've got a question for you. Was Peter a better man for the fall? Was Peter made a more fit man for Christ's service through the failings that God brought him through? Look, Peter's stumble at his first step exposed his empty boasting and taught him what he couldn't have learned in any other way. And Peter's fall helps us see the same. One, helps us see more clearly our own great weakness. And two, that Jesus' great grace. In that regard, these denials happened for Peter's good. And these denials happened, were recorded for our benefit. Peter used to be confident in himself and his own abilities, but after denying Jesus and being restored, his confidence was now in God's grace. And he came to understand that God's grace alone is sufficient for our weakness. So when we see Jesus and we are burdened down, we just pummel ourselves out of the boat and swim to shore to fall at the feet of Jesus, knowing that he will embrace us. I encourage you this morning, if you've never turned to Jesus, I'm asking you to do the same thing, repent and believe. If you've been carrying a weight too heavy for you to carry, if you are feeling miserable, if you are feeling down, if you are feeling weak, if your faith is in crisis, come to Jesus, repent and believe. I'm going to read a, a, a communion meditation that John Piper wrote uh, in the late 80s about Peter and John. It's about these two great apostles and friends, Peter and John, reuniting after years of separation in the ministry of the gospel. And as they reminisce, Peter confides in John that his denial of Jesus still haunts him. It's a story of finding freedom from sins of the past, and I think it's a story many of us need to hear this morning. It's going to take a couple of minutes. As I read it, the band are going to come forward, our communion servers are going to come forward and get into place, our prayer team are going to get into place, because we want to minister to you, we want to spend some time responding corporately together, and I invite you, if you've put your trust in Jesus today for the first time, or a long time ago, whatever, if you're relying on Jesus, I invite you to come and partake. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. His blood was spilled so that we could be purified. If you believe that, if you're relying on that, if you're even as sinful a guy as Peter and your preacher, you can come up and receive communion because it's a picture of his grace. So let me close with this. For years, their paths had never crossed. John used to smile and say, I've lost touch with the rock. And Peter thought from time to time, I really ought to find old John they hadn't seen each other since the time they'd been together in Jerusalem when Herod tried to murder them like James. They'd said their last farewell the night that Peter's prison cell was opened by an angel's hand and both remembered how they planned someday, somewhere, if God should will, to meet again. And they could still recall the final words they spoke that night. Oh, John, don't let the stroke that brought your brother down suppress your voice and make you any less a son of thunder without James. The Lord has given us our names. And yours is Peter now, John said, a solid friend with none to dread. How weak was Herod's prison lock? No power of hell will crush this rock. 
And that was all. Two decades passed without a meeting. Then at last in Smyrna, by the sea, the two apostles met again. It's you. It's really you. How are you, John? I'm well, Simon. And you? I've done all right, I guess. The Lord is good. You know my mouth. If Jesus weren't a patient God, I would have burned in hell a long time ago. Instead, I've watched the kingdom grow. Oh, John, the stories we could tell. It's true, you know. The gates of hell are falling everywhere. The Lord still speaks with power in his word. Have you not found it so? Come, sit with me beside the fire I've lit and tell me, brother, what, what one night do you recall with him that might go down in history as the best and worst of nights? The night he blessed the bread, it was the best and worst. Why do you ask? Because I thirst. I thirst to drink with him again. Oh, John, we will be different men. When he returns, and I am sure that when we eat, we will be pure. Can you believe the things we said that night and scorned the holy bread before his very face, the pride that you and I could scarcely hide, that he had chosen us to bake the bread and find the room and take charge of the meal, and then between us both to bicker and demean each other's name, which is more great, the sound of thunder or the weight of rock? And when he chastened me and showed me his humility and laid bare all of my arrogance, did I accept his second chance like you? I strutted like a cock and crowed my strength. I am a rock. If others turn away and fall, not I, at least the rock stands tall. It haunts me, John. At every meal, it haunts me till I scarce can feel forgiven. I preach, I heal the lame, I suffer for the Savior's name, and I rejoice to bear the shame. This is my passion, John, the flame that burns and burns until I feel that my heart could explode with zeal but I can scarcely lift my head when someone breaks the holy bread. It haunts me, John. For 20 years, the memory, Peter broke in tears. John watched the, the rock reduce and melt. And then the son of thunder knelt beside his friend and said, tell me, in all these years of sympathy for God's lost sheep, as you have healed the sick, and secret thoughts revealed, and made a thousand people new, has anyone laid hands on you? He shook his head. And so John laid his hands on Peter's head and prayed, the Lord, the Lord, a gracious God, and slow to lift an angry rod, abounding now in mercy and faithfulness for you and me, forgiving every kind of sin that we have ever fallen in, Come now, O Lord, and touch with me. Come, Jesus, heal the memory. Come, Spirit, spread a table here. No sin, no guilt, no pain, no fear. Come pour the cup and break the bread and lift your servant Simon's head and feed him with your righteousness and make the cup of blessing bless and speak now face to face, O Christ. My body I have sacrificed. I love you. I loved you, Peter, unto death. And love you now with every breath you take. Come, friend, lift up your head. That is the meaning of the bread. I meant it then and still it's true. My heart's desire to eat with you. And so today in Jesus' name, I welcome you to do the same. There is a quiet thunder here. And Jesus too is very near.
as we gather around the table one, be healed and nourished in the sun.